Now the men who were holding Jesus under guard began to mock him and beat him. They blindfolded him and asked him repeatedly, Prophesy, who hit you? And they also said many other things against him, reviling him. This is wrong. Who are the men guarding him? It's the religious leaders. It's the religious guards. It's the temple guards. These are, these are people, these are like you hiring guards to protect your church. And of course, you're going you're gonna to hire people who are godly men and women. And so these are the men that have been hired by them, the temple, and they're the ones mocking him. And, and here's the thing. We talked about this when we went through Judges. Even though God commanded the extermination of the Canaanites, he never, ever, ever condoned or justified the torture or the mutilation or the humiliation of them. They are still images of God. And they're being killed and executed in a swift, clean way as a judgment for their sin and lack of repentance. But executing justice on people does not mean that you have the right to mutilate and humiliate and abuse people for your own entertainment. That's sadistic. And if someone who's truly of the image of God, seeking the will of God, then executing judgment, even in the most ultimate sense of killing them, should be incredibly traumatic for you. Even Jesus who is basically prophesying the day is coming when the Romans are going to come and kill you and destroy this temple because of what you've done to me and how you've rejected me, still says, oh, how I long to gather you to, to my, in my wings like a mother hen gathers them. And still willing to die for them. And still willing to heal their ear. Even though God is executing harsh judgments that are absolutely final at times, he still has an incredible compassion and a gentleness and a respect and dignity for who they are as the image of God. Yes, he gets sarcastic with them at times, but not in a demeaning, you are an idiot kind of a sense, or you have no worth or value, shame on you, that kind of stuff. It's mostly for their actions. And yet these religious leaders are mocking, humiliating, abusing. They're blindfolding him physically beating him and mocking him like, hey, tell us who hit you, blind man. This reveals who they truly are in their heart. When the day came, the council of the elders of the people gathered together both the chief priests and the experts in the law, and they led Jesus away to their council and said, if you are the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he answered them, You say I am. And then they said, Why do we need further testimony? We have heard it from our, for ourselves. This trial is illegal in every kind of way. In every kind of way. According to Mark 13.35, the rooster crowed before dawn. Okay, so we know this is before dawn because Mark literally tells us the rooster is crowing before dawn. We are told that this is all happening between the first watch and the third watch. 
The first watch was called the evening watch, which ended um, between 9 p.m. or ended at 9 p.m. Okay, so the first watch is over with. It's the watch right at the time that the sun is going down, and that's around 9 p.m. The second was called the morning watch and ended about sunrise. Therefore, the rooster could have crowed any time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So we know that this rooster is crowing before the sun rises. We know that this second watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So this is all going to happen. The, the idea is the trial is happening as Jesus, Peter is denying things. And as Jesus' trial is being wrapped up and he's being brought out, then he's also, Peter is finally realizing that he's denied Christ. So this all is happening before 6 a.m. We're told at daybreak, the council of elders and chief priests and teachers of the law called a meeting. Daybreak is this word, hemera, which means the time space between dark and dawn. So it doesn't necessarily mean daybreak in the literal sense of day is breaking into the night, like we would think of it. It just means any time before the day actually breaks. So it's when the sun rises. And it's a more metaphorical sense. So, dawn can be any time of light when the man sun first appears, which occurs before sunrise. If sunrise occurs at 6 a.m., then Jesus could have been taken to the high priest as early as 4 a.m., and Luke mentions that the meeting was convened at daybreak after the rooster crowed. The trial began and ended before daybreak, showing that it did not take them long to falsely convict Jesus. Thus, the trial ended before 6 a.m. We know that they're having their trial somewhere around 3 or 4 a.m., and they're going to have their trial, and then they're going to send them to Pilate, who's going to send them to Herod, who's going to send it back to Pilate, and this is all going to be done by 6 a.m. So we've got a two-hour window here that these are, he's going to be standing before, well, Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and Pilate. And it's all going to happen before or right when the sun is rising. And basically by the time the sun comes up over the horizon and is fully there and visible and there's light, he's going to be ready to go to the cross. Some people said this is impossible because Pilate is all the way up in Caesarea Philippi and Herod is somewhere around the Galilee and the Caiaphas is down here in Jerusalem. But this is Passover week. And Passover week, everybody came down to Jerusalem. Herod, Pilate, everybody and they all live if you look at this city and we know where Caiaphas's house is we have a good idea we know that Pilate would have been at the Antonian fortress which is at the temple and we know Caiaphas's house is like within the th rocks throw Jerusalem's not that big okay it's not that big at all and we know that they're all close we all know we know that they're within five or 15 minutes of each other walking and they're all there and they would be up this early because the Passover week was the week that Jews flooded in from all over the diaspora, um, and they come in from all different places because this is one of the one of three required visits to the temple, and this is booming, big time booming. It's like New York on the New Year's Eve. Okay, it's going to be huge, and it's an influx, and it's be crowded, and it's like all hands on deck. Because Rome and the Jews are like oil and water in a way that no other people in the entire Roman Empire are. And there's always these opportunities for conflict against Rome and that kind of stuff. So they all would have been there. And they all would have been up super early because some the, they, they're rising early because one, a lot of these people rise early to get work done on the farm and that kind of stuff. And they're getting life going and they're going to be ready to go. 
And so, yes, this is very possible for all this to bounce back and forth in this time period in a short amount of time. This is illegal because, one, the Mosaic Law makes it very clear that a trial is not allowed to happen at night. Because in the First Testament and all of the ancient world, nothing good happens at night. We don't experience that too much because we have electricity and we can light things up very well. But we also know well enough that most of us don't really want to be walking down back alleys of Ohio State campus in the middle of the night. Okay? And no matter how many like blue light buzzer things you can hit for campus cops to come, yeah, take your chances. You don't really want to be out at night, especially in the ancient world when there is no light and there is no police force to come and rescue you and nothing good happens at night. And this is what I tell my students at school all the time. If you don't believe your parents when they tell you that, go talk to a cop because every cop is required to work the night shift when they first become a cop. Now, they want to eventually get out of that because that's not fun. And if you talk to a cop, which I've had several cop friends over the years, they will tell you some of the most jacked up stories of things that happen at night. They're like, it is amazing. It's like the minute the sun drops and about like 30 minutes or an hour after the sun drops, it's like the craziest things that you could never make up start happening. That you, you're bored most of the day like especially like Columbus and stuff you're just like you're driving around doing your things you get a thing there and you kind of get a thing but it's like bam 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 all through the night of constant things there's something about the darkness that brings out evil in people and so and it, it brings cover for things and that's why one of your best defenses is a well-lit house outwardly you're not allowed trials, nor would you really want to bring respectable people through the middle of the night to have a trial. So not only are you not allowed to have this in the darkness because God is light, and the whole point of a trial is to bring the evil out into the light, but nothing good happens at night, and you don't want good people shouldn't be walking through the night. Most of the time, your judges wouldn't even get there alive. And so this can't happen at night. Likewise, there's supposed to be evidence. There's supposed to be witnesses. They don't have any of that. They're supposed to, it's supposed to, all trials are supposed to be public. The crowd doesn't even know this is happening. They're not even there until after the results are given. All this is highly illegal, highly illegal in so many ways. And yet they do it because this is politics. And they only ask them one question. They're only interested in, do you claim to be a king? Do you claim to be the Messiah, the conquering Messiah? The one that we've been looking for forever, but the one that we're going to use the prophecies to bring us hope that will no longer be under the thumb of Rome, but now we're going to use those prophecies against you to accuse you of being a traitor against Rome so that Rome will kill you. Ah, this is manipulate the word of God and use it however you want. Here's what's happening. They are first and foremost interested in charge of blasphemy. Blasphemy is when you claim to be equal with God or to do something on God's behalf when it's obvious that you're not of God or you claim to be God or something like that. And Jesus has done that plenty of times. But now this is a trial and they need to have his words say that. And so according to the Mosaic law, they can execute someone for blasphemy. It's required by the law to execute them. But the law requires you to stone them. 
They need to get Jesus convicted on blasphemy so that it will hold up to their Mosaic law. And they can say, we are right before God. Our hands are clean. He committed blasphemy. Therefore, we have the right to kill him. But under the Roman Empire, they're not allowed to execute people without Rome's permission. And Rome will never give them permission. Rome will just take over the execution for them. And Rome doesn't do stoning. Rome does crucifixions or impalings or floggings or that kind of stuff. They need to get that. Rome doesn't care about blasphemy. Caesar has claimed to be God. Other people have claimed to be God. Hercules is God. Perseus is half God and half man and their way of thinking. They don't care about that. So they go. To, they want him dead, but they can't crucify or they can't kill Jesus with Rome there. So now they've got to convince Rome that he is treason because that's the thing that's punishable by death. So they need to get a charge of blasphemy against him so they can be right before God in their eyes. And they need to get a charge of treason so that they can be, get Rome to kill him. And so they need to hear him say, I am the Messiah. Because they can go to, the, to Rome and say, here's what the Bible says about the Messiah. Now, Rome already knows that. Pilate and all of them already know that. Because you don't rule over a people group without knowing what they strongly believe in. And so they already know what their concept of the Messiah is. So they can go and say, he's claiming to be the conquering king over all foreign enemies. That's you. And you call that treason. And that's punishable by death. And so they need to hear it. So they're going first for the treason charge. Are you the Messiah in the way that we think of it? And he says, if I tell you the answer, you won't believe me. You've asked me multiple questions throughout my ministry. And I tell you what I think. And you're like, oh, whatever. You're not that. I don't accept you as the Messiah. But if I ask you, who do you think I am? You're not going to give me an answer because you're too afraid. Give me an answer because I've already seen that happen. But he goes on and says, but here's what's going on. Because this is the most ultimate evil at this moment. You're going to see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God. He's already made it very clear all throughout his ministry that he believes himself to be the Son of Man. And we've already talked about that. That's from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And it's basically the prophecy of this God-man figure who walks up to God without sin and is given all power, all glory, and all the kingdom of God and rules for all eternity with God's approval, Yahweh's approval. And they, they, don't, they don't know what to do with that. They can't deny it because it's in the Bible, but they don't like it because humans aren't God and humans aren't without sin. So you, they just don't talk about it. But Jesus comes along and says, Son of man, son of man, son of man, son of man, son of man. And he claims to be that. And they know exactly what that means. And then he pushes it even further and says, I know what you're thinking, and I can heal people, and I can forgive sins, which only God can do. We've already talked about all that. But now he pushes it even further and says, I'm, gonna, I'm sitting at the right hand of God. That's sonship language. That's equality language. That's I rule the universe language. And I'm going to sit at the right hand to judge you. The only person who can judge you is God himself. And so he is now answering his own question. So they asked him the question about taxes, and they asked him the question about resurrection, and he fired back at them and said, Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who is that man? And they're like, oh, well, then I'm not going to tell you. And now he's telling them, that man is me, and I am God. 
And I am man. And I sit at the right hand of God judging you. I am that man who is greater than David and can be greater than David because I am God that existed before David. But I am also that man because I am the Messiah that comes from David because I am a human, as in Daniel 7. And I am the one who is given all power and all sovereignty and all authority in order to judge the nations from Daniel 7. And the first person I'm going to judge is you guys. Matthew adds the part where Jesus says, and I will come with the clouds, which is Daniel 7. And that's also divinity judgment. Because we talked about this, every single passage in the Bible that talks about the storm is always judgment. The whirlwind. And he's saying, I'm coming in the whirlwind for you one day but you're not going to survive it like Job and they know that because at that moment Jesus hasn't just said I'm the king of the Jews which that's not really blasphemy that's not punishable by death he's gone even further in saying I'm that figure in Psalm 10 I am God I'm going to judge you at that point Caiaphas we're told in the other gospels rips his clothing and says you've heard it from his own mouth blasphemy and now they have everything they want everything they want blasphemy charges so they can be innocent before God and treason charges for taking him to Rome this is all politics all politics we do not need any further testimony now I guess in some technical sense the not having witnesses is not a bad thing in this sense because even in any court of any law, once somebody confesses to something, you don't need testimonies. But the fact that they begin it with having no witnesses says something about who they are. Was Nicodemus in that group? I don't know. Nicodemus is a hard nut to crack. I know the chosen makes him this like really sympathetic, great person from the very beginning and all the way to the, well, I can't say to the end because they're not at the end yet. Here's a struggle. We see Nicodemus and John. And John, it says that Nicodemus came to him in the night to question him. Nothing good ever happens at night. This is very clear all throughout the Bible and all the Gospels. And in John's Gospel, it's especially true. It is the absolute golden rule in John's gospel. Because John's gospel begins with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was the light of all mankind. And the Word came into the darkness, which is us. And the darkness neither accepted nor received him. And then John, the same guy who writes the gospel, who goes off to write First John, says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And John has this huge light-darkness motif. Every scholar will tell you one of the most dominant themes in John is light and dark, the, the polarity there. And everything that is good is light, and everything that is bad is dark. It says that the devil entered Judas in the night. Jesus put on trial in the night. The, the garden in the night arrested, and Nicodemus comes in the night. Now the storm in the night, like all these things, the night, 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 is always used in a bad way. And so Nicodemus definitely comes to entrap him. He's not interested. I mean, even Jesus harshly rebukes him. Like, you're the great expert of the law and you can't even answer simple questions like this. Like, there, it's definitely clear that there's not a friendly dialogue there. That this is not well-intentioned. 
However, at the very end, it says that Nicodemus joined Joseph of Arimathea in burying him. And so somewhere he has gained compassion. Is he a believer at that point? I don't know. It, that's all it says. He joined Joseph of Arimathea. The implication is Joseph of Arimathea is a devout follower who is a Pharisee. And that Nicodemus is joining him, risking his reputation and everything, suggests that he has. It's interesting that John doesn't deal with that process. The chosen does, but in John's gospel, Nicodemus comes to him in the night to entrap him. It's evil. It's, it's not. It's not well-intentioned. There's nothing positive about it. But by the burial, Nicodemus is there. And we're, gotten, we're given no insight and what happened between those two things. And the only thing I can think of is he's an example of someone who came to kill and entrap Jesus and got so owned by him that instead of getting enraged and wanting to kill him, he walked away with lots of wheels turning in his head. And those wheels eventually led to it. So is the chosen right in the sense that Nicodemus ends up there? Yeah. But did Nicodemus start off that way? No. Not according to the motifs that are clearly set out through the 39 books of the Bible before we even get here. And John very clearly tells you, light good, darkness bad. Read my Bible, that my gospel that way. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, Nicodemus got there eventually. But how? Don't know. Don't know. 